Welcome back to Gertie's Law. I'm Greg Muller. And to kick off Season 2, we're taking a look at what happened at the Supreme Court during the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot's changed in a very short time. For example, how could the court safely impanel a jury whilst adhering to the public health concerns of social distancing? Many matters now happen online, so how does a judge keep control of a courtroom and ensure a fair hearing when all the parties are appearing remotely? Why is coronavirus raised regularly in bail applications? And then there's the dilemma of what to wear in court, when you're actually in your bedroom. This episode comes to you from living rooms, spare rooms, home studies across the suburbs of Melbourne. Most of the people we spoke to are working from home, as are we. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Nothing but the truth. When COVID-19 hit Australia, everything changed. Schools, pubs and restaurants closed. The AFL season stopped after only one round and then started up again in other states. And for Victoria, that's a pretty big deal. It's been a rollercoaster ride, to say the least. We've had to rewrite this episode so many times. We'd write it, record it, and then things would change. For example, juries were suspended. Then plans were drawn up to bring them back. And then Melbourne had to lock down for the second time and jury trials were again suspended. As all Melburnians know, this pandemic has been a moving story. But while the way things were done had to change, the courts couldn't shut down completely because crime didn't stop and people remain in custody unconvicted for longer periods than they would have before. Also, family violence continues unabated. Disputes need settling, appeals need to be heard, and trials need to continue to provide justice for both accused and victims. So, as an essential service, the courts had to move quickly. The main thing at the start for me was that the work that the court does affects so many people in the community and is really important to keep going. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson, and as you can probably tell by the quality of the recording, we conducted most of this episode's interviews over Zoom or other video conferencing software. So we had to get the work of the court going, but at the same time, the health and uh, well-being of everybody that works in the court and comes into the courts, you know, a real priority. So how do you balance those two things? We had to be guided basically by the uh, government and health advice and just keep a really close eye on that. But putting the work of the court on hold wasn't possible. Essentially, people wouldn't have been able to get justice and that's just not an option. You know, we had to do whatever we could to keep it operating. You just can't have people who can't get to a court to get justice. There's all sorts of examples of that, but you know, if somebody's coming to knock down your house illegally, you've got to be able to get a court order to prevent them from doing that. One of the first things that had to go was juries. You know, I can remember clearly when I made the decision that we couldn't have the juries and I was standing in the car park, um, you know, thinking, and I was about to make a call to, to say, I think this is, we've got to, we've got to suspend this. And it's interesting because people think a jury's 12 people, that's right, but the 12 people come from a much larger pool. 
So, for example, in Melbourne, on any given day, the jury pool will be about 200 people all gathering in the one place. And then the 12 come from that 200. So it wasn't just about keeping 12 people safe. It was about what do you do about the 200 people? And that was really challenging. And we did what everybody else in the community did and businesses did with all the extra cleaning and all the extra disinfecting and... You know, we've now got all the signs up and when you go in now, there's stickers on the floor and it's a bit like playing Twister, you know, you feel like you're in a Twister game, put your left foot here and your right foot there, um, which is going to be the same in any office building. Head of the Criminal Division, Justice Hollingworth. Now, obviously, once that process couldn't proceed, we couldn't go through the selection process for juries. That meant that uh, no future jury trials could start for the time being. We only had two or three trials that were underway at the time the, the pandemic struck. So those juries were able to continue sitting. Uh, but, but the primary thing was we couldn't start new trials. That's because in Victoria, all trials for serious criminal matters in both the Supreme and the County Court are dealt with as trial by jury. In April 2020, the government brought in temporary legislation allowing trial by judge alone in certain circumstances. One of the things that had to happen is the parties need to apply uh, for a trial by judge alone. And in particular, if the accused doesn't consent, then there won't be a trial by judge alone. So far, a small number of applications have been made in Victoria for a judge-only trial, mostly in the county court. The Supreme Court held its first one in September, a murder trial where a man was accused of killing his sister. But most people have chosen to wait until juries return. And I think one of the reasons for that is that most litigants and most lawyers are very happy with the jury system, um, believe that it's fair, believe that juries generally get the right results. Due to the smaller number of trials in the Supreme Court, the backlog in crime cases has mostly been felt in the county court. But a judge alone trial might not necessarily speed things up. I think one of the things is people sometimes think that a judge alone is going to be more efficient. But when you have a judge alone trial, the judge is going to have to write reasons for decision at the end of it. You see, a jury don't have to give reasons for their decision. They might go out and deliberate for a number of days, but at the end of it, they just announce their verdict and that's it. Whereas a judge is required to give reasons for decision, and they might run for the sort of three to four week trial we would have in our court, reasons for decision might run to hundreds of pages. So actually in the long run, they won't be more efficient uh, than us getting back to jury trials as and when we safely can do so. There is, however, one area where there's been increased interest in judge alone trials. Is in the mental impairment area. One of them's what we call a fitness hearing, and that's where we have to decide whether someone is in fact fit to stand trial or to plead. Now, traditionally, those have been those issues have been decided by juries. The legislation that was brought in allowed that to be done by judge alone, which has always seemed to me a sensible thing to do because it mostly involves considering expert psychiatric evidence about the person's mental state. Secondly, if somebody has been found unfit to stand trial, they don't then just go home or get set free. They still go through a process that we call a special hearing. It's a bit like a trial, um, except that the verdicts are different. So there's still a public hearing as to what happened and whether the accused performed the acts, and in particular whether they performed the acts while they were acting under some mental impairment. 
And it's not just criminal trials which are affected by the cancellation of juries. Juries of six or 12 are used in the common law division. Head of common law at the Supreme Court, Justice Dixon. When the prospect of the pandemic became serious and you know we weren't sure that it was going to affect us, but then all of a sudden we couldn't have juries. There's a big problem for the criminal jurisdiction, but from my perspective in, in the common law jurisdiction, parties ask for juries, but they're not as of right an absolute entitlement. And the judges are able to say, no, well, you can have a trial in front of a judge uh, and that's just as fair as a trial in front of a judge and jury. So we said that's what happened. And there's still discretion to adjourn the matter if having a jury is considered the most appropriate option. I'm Chris Maxwell. I'm the President of the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal also had to move its operations essentially off-site. Did it affect the number of matters that you were able to deal with? No, in fact, and this surprised us. Our figures to the end of 30 June 2020 show that we actually disposed of more appeals, criminal and civil, than we did in the 2018-2019 year. And that was was a complete surprise because I think we thought, well, this is more cumbersome and there may be problems with the technology. We'll just do our best. Uh, I suppose the other thing to say immediately is that the COVID transition was easier for the Court of Appeal than I think any other jurisdiction, either in the Supreme Court or in the other courts, because we have such a homogenous type of work. Although the, the content varies, the essential moving parts don't change. And of course, we don't have witnesses, we don't have juries, we really have a set of appeal papers, either in physical form or more and more electronically, and we have the barristers arguing for the two sides to the appeal. Based on those numbers, is it a stretch to say then that working online was more efficient? Uh, I don't think it's stretching. That's a fair description. The The increase in output was a bit under 10%, but it's statistically significant. We went up from something like 370 the previous year to 400 disposals in this year just gone. Initiations, that is the workflow in, dropped a bit in the financial year to 30 June. And that's not surprising, given that two-thirds of what we do in the Court of Appeal is appeals in criminal matters and with no jury trials from April, we unsurprisingly had a fall off in appeals against conviction. On the other hand, because judges weren't presiding in trials, they were able to do more sentencing hearings. And since 30 June, we've had a real upsurge in the numbers coming in, a big spike in the first quarter of this financial year. This year was the 25th anniversary of the Victorian Court of Appeal, but it didn't turn out to be the celebratory year President Maxwell was expecting. No, well, that's really interesting. Yes, it was the 25th anniversary, the Court of Appeal having been established in June 1995. First time Victoria had a standalone Court of Appeal. What we had planned to do was to go to regional Victoria six times in the year. Normally we go a couple of times. And so we had six country circuits lined up and um, in the end, we haven't been able to do them.
The first plan to reinstate criminal jury trials was to start them in July, but the rise in community transmissions at the end of June through to August saw tougher restrictions brought in. So, three and a half weeks after the courts announced that jury trials were to resume, they were delayed again. Then from November 18, following more than two weeks of what's affectionately known as double donut days, that is, zero new cases and zero deaths, criminal jury trials began to return but with changes. Centuries-old seating arrangements in the courtroom have been altered in the face of coronavirus restrictions to allow for social distancing. Jurors are now seated throughout the courtroom rather than next to each other in the jury box. The accused and security officers are in the media seats and reporters and other onlookers in the public gallery. Jury pools are being formed virtually and masks are worn in line with public health advice. While the lack of jury trials has had the most obvious impact, Another topic which has attracted some media attention is the way COVID-19 has been consistently raised in bail hearings. Justice Hollingworth again. Well, there's been a substantial increase in the number of bail applications, uh, but there hasn't been a substantial increase in the success rate for bail applications. Uh, There's perhaps a a popular misconception that the COVID pandemic's been a get-out-of-jail-free card on bail applications. Certainly our experience in this court is not... Uh, the case. On the contrary, the sort of rates of success and failure for bail applications have been pretty consistent with the same time last year and the year before. Criminal Judge Justice Tinney has been hearing a large number of bail applications here at the Supreme Court. Bail's always a sort of a, it's a weighing up of competing considerations. The, the guiding principles of the Act are the Parliament recognises the importance of maximising the safety of the community and persons affected by crime but also the next one in the list of considerations is taking account of the presumption of innocence and the right to liberty. So, and, and in the Bail Act, you know, in, the, uh, in bail applications, and there is a presumption in favour of bail being granted when all of the considerations are taken in, into account. But most of the things that come to, to this court, in fact, a lot of courts too, are ones where that presumption has been displaced by a rule that the applicant for bail has got to prove exceptional circumstances in favour of bail or a compelling reason why bail should be granted. So the COVID-19 stuff has been another important surrounding circumstance to consider. And in some cases, it's one that's going to sort of weigh the balance or tip the balance in favour of finding that there are exceptional circumstances or that there's not an unacceptable risk. And there's a number of arguments being put forward for bail in relation to COVID-19. So if you've got a case where someone is charged, let's say, with murder, uh, and if it's a strong case of murder, then even if the period of time that the person is likely to spend on remand before the trial is heard, even if it blows out to two and a half years or even three years, the fact is the sentence, should the person be found guilty of murder, vastly exceeds that. And so the, the issue of delay is going to be a much less significant thing in a case such as that. But this changes for less serious offences, crimes where a one or two year sentence is likely. And so the, even if there's an additional delay of something like six months in a case like that, you may well get to the stage of thinking that the person's going to spend longer on remand than they're going to get a sentence for even if they're found guilty. So in that sort of situation, delay is going to be very significant and may be the determining factor in bail being granted. Another issue which has come up in bail applications is the fact that the pandemic can make somebody's time in prison more difficult. There are are a few aspects of that. There's the 
the fact that since I think the 21st of March, visits to uh, people held in custody are not permitted. So uh, family members and others are not allowed to go into the prison. The prisons have tried, they've been very good in trying to uh, increase the availability of phone calls and uh, video calls and what have you to, to loved ones by, by prisoners being held. But the fact is, uh, it's a significant thing that they can no longer receive for now, uh, personal visits. Professional visits are still permitted, but they're sort of in a, in a cubicle thing. Uh, then there's a restriction on uh, movement in the prison. I mean, it's already a restrictive environment, obviously, but uh, that's been greatly increased uh, in the time since the pandemic has become an issue. And there's a restriction on the hours that people are spending out of their cells. So in many prisons, or in, in, for the case of many prisoners, they are usually permitted to spend about 11 hours or so per day out of their cell. And in some cases, that, that's been reduced very substantially. And it's, a, it's almost a lockdown situation. Not, uh, not in every case, but in some cases. So that's, a, that's been a very significant thing too, because there's a big difference between being held in your, your cell for 23 hours out of 24, or being able to spend the bulk of the day actually out having contact with other uh, prisoners. Uh, then there's the sort of the anxiety it's considered that people in custody would feel, maybe even over and above the anxiety that people in the broader community would feel because uh, there is the concern about transmission of the virus into prison and what would then happen. So that's another thing that is said to sort of increase the burden on um, people who are, who are in custody. One case specifically involving COVID-19 was that of Mark Rowden. He applied for an early release because he claimed existing health conditions made him more vulnerable to coronavirus. The court rejected his bid to get out of jail, but it did order that corrections do a COVID-19-related risk assessment for people held at Port Phillip Prison. Another area where bail applications may be strengthened relates to child accused. There are some specific provisions in the Bail Act that require any court to have regard to things like the need for a child to maintain family relationships, the need for them to continue to be actively involved in education and training and things of that sort. And the situation has been that because of the lockdown in the Parkville and Malmesbury Youth Justice facilities, and because of some of the restrictions on education and training, uh, there has been some strengthening of some bail applications where those important goals for children of continuing education training and continuing family relationships uh, have been affected by uh, the pandemic. So first and foremost I'm joined by uh, Chief Commissioner Graham Ashton, Police and Emergency Services Minister. National Cabinet took some unprecedented steps, huge steps yesterday to keep Victorians and indeed Australians safe. Uh, Never before have we seen a situation where uh, venues, such a large part of our economy, has essentially this is been appropriate. shut down. It's painful, but it is absolutely appropriate. The Supreme Court's a very quiet place now. Quieter than normal. Most staff were able to work from home, even judges. Thanks, Greg, for joining. Um, obviously, you can see and hear us in the courtroom. Um, you've done the hardest bit by joining. While some um, criminal hearings are taking place physically yeah. inside the court, no worries. Sounds good. 
the vast majority of the court's work is now happening online. Um, we'll ask if you're not having a speaking role today, if you can turn your camera off. And just while you're not talking, if you can have yourself on mute, please, that just helps with any feedback in the courtroom. Is there anything else I can help you with? There's always going to be a technical glitch. As soon as you introduce something that has technology involved, there's going to be some glitches. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson. But also, if you think about what a court hearing was like uh, in person before the pandemic, they didn't run perfectly either all the time. So you can't get it out of proportion. So my observation is that overall, the virtual hearings have been running pretty well. And when there has been a glitch, we've been able to address it pretty quickly. The quality of the work that we're doing and the justice that we're delivering hasn't been diminished by doing it in a different way. All right, well, I'm Jacinta Forbes. Um, I joined the court in April 2019 and in December 2019, I was asked by the Chief Justice to take over the role as the IT judge. We spoke to Justice Forbes via Zoom. An image of the courtyard in the Supreme Court was her chosen background. The IT judge is the person who, there are a number of portfolios and a judge is responsible, so there's a judge who's responsible for buildings. And a quick aside here, the building judge is also known around here as the heating judge, the person who decides when to turn the boilers for the heating on and off. Choosing that one day where the season changes, in Melbourne, an impossible task. The heating judge is often cursed as people walk along the corridors in puffer jackets and gloves. Back to the IT judge. So my role really is to be the link between uh, judges and all of the IT departments. And Justice Forbes had just taken on this role when... (laughs) It was just before Christmas last year, so I sort of went on holidays over January and I came back and... Um, as I was still finding my feet in the IT structure of the court when this happened. A global pandemic. It was a bit of a baptism of fire. The judge who had it before me had done a phenomenal job over about five years overseeing probably a six or seven year project trying to upgrade the digital and IT capacity of the courts. And I inherited it at a part where it was probably about halfway through, maybe a bit more in terms of the court conversion, and we had a lovely draft plan for the next five years of what was going to happen, and within about six weeks, that plan went out the window and we just had to revisit everything in the face of COVID. Well, I don't know how long, but a short time before the lockdown was announced, it was becoming increasingly obvious that something of that nature would happen, and so... We pulled together a task force to look at what that might mean for the court, both in terms of how we might run hearings when we couldn't get people into courtrooms. So then the challenge was to make that conversion in the space of about 10 days. And then the way we did that was we looked at what we had to tell the profession about how this was going to work and in effect sort of train those people up or get them to understand what they would need to do. And we had to train the judges. So there was an incredible amount of work done in a very short space of time. Then we crossed our fingers and jumped into the unknown and started doing it. Video conferencing software has become customary for much of the world over the last few months. And it was no different for the court. Short cases with only two parties, no witnesses and documents prepared earlier are well suited to remote hearings. These tended to go well. 
but the real test came with more complex trials. I've just finished a five-day hearing that had four parties, five barristers, some of whom were appearing in chambers, some of whom were appearing from home. We had four witnesses. They all gave their evidence remotely. We finished in the time that had been estimated for it to be dealt with in the real world and that accommodated some glitches in the technology but um, ultimately people had access to timely justice. Yeah, that is a photo of fake background. I spoke to the head of the commercial court, Justice Reardon, via Zoom. The real background is is not very impressive. His background was the coat of arms of England, the royal arms, the one with the lion and the unicorn, the same one behind the bench in the courtrooms. He looks like a judge. Very important first thing to have. One concern is that virtual court hearings remove the incidental interactions, which happen when people are in the same room or indeed in the corridor, and therefore limit the possibility to resolve matters at the door of the court. Yeah, that's there's undoubtedly been challenging for negotiations. The associate judges and judicial registrars have done a marvellous job uh, by continuing the mediations, but that's been done in circumstances where they've had to do them through Zoom. And speaking from my own experience before appointment, being a mediator normally requires you to exert your influence by your presence in the room and by communicating with people. But having said that, they are continuing to do them and I know of one that went until two o'clock in the morning, week before last. We still have the capacity to put them off into separate rooms to enable them to have discussions about issues. Uh, But I don't think the door of the court settlement is such a significant feature in commercial cases, but it could be. Associate Professor Genevieve Grant is Director of the Australian Centre for Justice Innovation in the Law Faculty at Monash University. She started a research project based on COVID-19 in the courts called Remote Remote Justice Justice Stories. Stories Project, we were hoping to capture the experiences of a range of different court users and observers of remote hearings. It's a an unparalleled opportunity to try and capture what the people who've actually experienced a remote hearing, whether as a lawyer or a litigant or court staff or media or other observer, have perceived while these remote hearings have been happening. The pressure associated with coming to court to reach a settlement is something which has come up. Yeah, so people have made the observation that the physical courtroom does provide a space for practitioners and their clients on occasion to have the sorts of informal interactions that can lead to proceedings being settled or to the parties coming closer together on the issues that are in dispute. And the absence of that um, and that informal opportunity for exchange is, um, is a significant change, you know, to the way that parties are interacting on these matters. I have observed some hearings where the practitioners do still have an opportunity to uh, check in with each other and chat while they're waiting for the judge to appear in a in a virtual courtroom. But it's a different atmosphere than if you're um, if you're face to face with someone who you perhaps are regularly litigating against. There is um, an extent to which the technology does uh, create a, another barrier, I guess, in that respect. And being in your home as opposed to a witness box in a nineteenth century building has, in some cases, changed the sense of formality. Common law judge and technology judge. Justice Forbes. We we had an elderly man who um, gave evidence 
from his lounge room in country Victoria and he'd been told, as we always tell witnesses in cases, you know, if you need a break, you just need to ask for it. And if he was in the physical court, he'd be in the, in the witness box and he'd say, could I have a break? And I'd leave the bench and everyone would take a break and then we'd come back again. But when he was in his living room, he just sort of suddenly said, I need a break, I'll be back in a few minutes. And he sort of walked out of his room and <laughs> I'm sort of trying to remind him that he's not allowed to talk to anybody about his evidence as we would normally do when someone leaves the witness box. And he sort of said, yeah, 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 right, love, that's fine. Then the barristers and I are all sort of sit, left sitting there watching each other on the videos thinking, will we adjourn, will we wait, what will we do? So uh, it, it, the dynamic's quite different. And then there's cases where virtual hearings may actually save time. I think it's been Justice Reardon. Interesting when I've had, for example, a problem with a, an advocate being difficult, uh, I could simply say, Madam Associate, please mute Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so can be muted. If Mr. So- if Mr. So-and-so wants to make bad faces, I can say, put him in the waiting room. <laughs> and it happens automatically. Um, so these things <laughs> make it very efficient. More practically... When there's an objection taken to a question to a witness and it's said objection is, should be made in the absence of the witness, my associate will just immediately put the witness and my instruction into the, into the waiting room and we proceed. So you save the time with the witness having to walk out and then somebody have to go and get the witness and the witness walk back in, they're, they're gone and then they're back again immediately. Another thing which needed to be considered, normally anyone can walk in off the street into any courtroom to see what's going on. And judging from your feedback, more people are taking this up since the podcast started. But what happens when that courtroom is now a virtual one? Justice Dixon again. Part of the problem with what the pandemic has required of us is that we regard it as essential and a fundamental value that everything we do is done out in the open, where it... um, it is transparent and can be independently observed and reported on. Well, having hearings over video on these platforms, prima facie doesn't meet that requirement. So that we've had to, courts have had to adjust to continue to be out in the open. Now, unlike you know, 100 years ago when, when the public used to flock in and fill the galleries just to be amused at watching what happened for the day, that doesn't happen anymore, but it's mainly the media and we made it clear that uh, the, the media or any individual who wanted to watch a particular trial can, can contact and they will get an invitation to attend the remote hearing. Hold on second. I'm just on a Zoom meeting. Oh, all good. Chanel Valla covers the courts for Channel 7. Sorry, car park attendant. We were worried at the start that we would be shut out and that we'd be the last people that were thought of in the chain of events of things that had to happen. But pretty much across the board, we've been given access to information, kept up to date, been told how WebEx hearings would work. And it's felt like we were there. Adam Cooper covers the courts for The Age newspaper and online. Yeah, well, I've spent the last the past three months at home. So traditionally, that would be very difficult for a court reporter, given that we need to be in court when cases are happening. But when it came to covering court cases, I was effectively doing it from afar, which meant um, gaining access to what was happening in court through WebEx links and watching sentences and bail application rulings via live stream. You know, it's always odd to listen to a Supreme Court hearing in your lounge room. um, And you always want to stand, even though you're at home, when the 
when the judge walks in, you want to stand and you want to bow and do all those things when you walk away from your laptop. But um, it's a different feeling, but it seems to be working. I must admit, I'm keen to get back to courts to to be there when when sentences and when big cases are on. Yeah, it, it, it feels sort of tricky and a, a bit difficult at times sort of watching from afar. And it doesn't feel like you're really capturing the full story by, you know, sitting in, in the back room at home. And there's obviously no substitute for being in court because you can see people's reactions, you can hear everything loud and live, um, and then you can importantly check details afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I think now that the courts have had a taste for the technology and seen that it's been effective in, at times, that there might be a um, temptation to, to do it differently. Our big concern would be so long as we can be a part of that and get access to that, those judgments or those decisions, then, yeah, that would be fine. Yes, lovely. What do you want? What's the pandemic been like for those usually sitting at the bar table? After all, they're the ones doing most of the talking in court. I spoke to civil barrister Matthew Elbert. The headphones won't fit over the top. The headphones won't fit over the top. Via Zoom. You need to take the headphones off to put your helmet on. and encountered one of those issues those of us who are working from home, online, while also homeschooling, found ourselves dealing with. Having a major meltdown because he's um, got earmuffs ear, ear on and he can't fit his helmet over the top to go riding in his earmuffs and the helmet. So that's the end of the world. So parenting aside, what's it like being a barrister as well? Um, it's been variable. I mean, it... it, it, it there's, there's a couple of things that have been disconcerting about it. Matthew has it's appeared in various courts during using. this pandemic. Um, I have to say, appearing by phone is a nightmare from a barrister point of view. And the reason for that is we do rely on visual cues and we do rely on body language from the judge to our submissions. When you're on the phone, the sound of a judge listening very intently and the sound of a judge falling off the line and you falling off the line is exactly the same sound. So you actually don't know whether the judge is there. The video hearings um, have gone really well for the most part. You know, it's amazing how quickly we've all adapted by necessity. The glitches um, in the video hearings have been routinely fairly amusing. We had a hearing sort of a couple of weeks into lockdown and the hearing was going along all very smoothly and I was in the middle of my submissions and I could see everyone and they could see me and the sound was good and all was well and it got to 10.30 exactly, exactly 10.30am and all of a sudden the picture became grainy, the sound became terrible, I couldn't fully see them, they couldn't see me uh, and the judge said, look, this is really too bad, I'm going to stand the matter down and we'll see what the problem is and we'll try and resolve it. Anyway, as the judge walked off the bench, it occurred to me that the problem could very well be at my end. So I went to our living room and realised that my son, my three-year-old son's online music class started at 10.30am and his online music class was using the very wedge of bandwidth that I needed to have my court hearing. So I negotiated as one must with a three-year-old that he unfortunately had to miss the music class that day because I was appearing in the Supreme Court. 
he was ultimately obliging, not immediately obliging, but ultimately obliging. Uh, so I came back and, and the judge came back on the bench and I, I said to her, Honor, look, I think we've just made legal history because I, I, I'm fairly confident a court has never had to adjourn to accommodate a three-year-old's music class before, but we just did. And her Honor asked, did I pull rank? And I, I said I did. Elizabeth Bennett is a barrister who was also thrown into this new world of virtual hearings. They always say, you know, when you first become a barrister, they say, oh, make sure you speak slowly and be careful of your posture and think about how you use your words. And I think that there's a different skill doing it virtually. Uh, You lack a lot of the physical cues from the bench. You do still get some, but they're slower and harder to read. So you need to concentrate in a different way and you can't engage in the same way with the bench that you're used to. So in the first week of lockdown, I had a hearing in the federal court and the case relevantly was about the power to detain. And the judge was listening very intently and then halfway through a passage uh, as she's listening, I noticed her eyes sort of darting off the screen where she'd been looking and looking increasingly concerned as time went by. And after a minute or so, she interrupted the other barrister and said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I've noticed that there are police walking down my driveway and they've just knocked on the door. Uh, so can you excuse me for a moment? And she left her camera on and, and walked off. And of course, us barristers are sitting there thinking, okay, this is a bit strange, but you know, it'll be over soon. And we sat there and we sat there and we sat there for an uncomfortably long period of time, wondering to ourselves what the protocol was if a judge gets arrested in the middle of a hearing. After a long period of time, the judge came back on the screen (laughs) looking quite bemused and said, I can assure all of you that Victoria Police are doing an excellent job of following up on those in quarantine. I was in New Zealand, I'm on 14 days quarantine right now, and they were checking to see that I was, in fact, at home and quarantining. I didn't tell them what I do, but it did occur to me that it would be slightly problematic if they wanted to take me away. And then my leader very cleverly said, well, Your Honour, this is an important case about the power to detain, and I'm sure Your Honour understands that importance now. And the hearing went on as normal, but it's a sign, a perfect sign of what this new abnormal is like. Chanel Valla from Channel 7. You know, it, it's interesting to see, you see barristers appearing by a web in their lounge rooms kind of thing and you're looking, you kind of want to zoom to see how, how these people live. It's like seeing them in their natural habitat for once. You know, and you can see barristers with guitars in the background and you want to see what books they're reading. I guess there's also been times where the link maybe hasn't been cut off right at the end of a hearing and I've heard a a barrister uh, suggest to a judge that beef carpaccio is quite good if you use shallots in it. I heard another guy be sentenced, he was given quite a hefty sentence, well over 10 years and as he was being taken away I heard a prison guard say down the Webex, oh mate are you going home today? No he just got 10 years, definitely not going home. Those incidental conversations that you would never be privy to. Correct, correct. And, you know, it's, I guess it's one thing that journalists have been taught 
our whole careers is always treat a microphone like it's on. Um, our managers and bosses tell us that all the time, but this is something that barristers are, and judges are just working out. <laughs> One thing we talked about last season in episode 5 was the influence of the Supreme Court's architecture. This imposing building immediately conveys that what's going on is important and you better take it seriously. So how do you maintain this pressure when people might be appearing from their kitchen or indeed anywhere? Genevieve Grant. I think it's a really interesting question to think about how people who've had their matters resolved in this time of remote justice feel about that experience and how it might differ having had that experience online as opposed to being in the physical building at the Supreme Court? You know, the Supreme Court building commands that people adhere to certain procedures and it just has that feeling about it from the moment you walk in, you always you almost want to hush your voice when you walk around those halls because it feels so prestigious. So now all of a sudden we're beaming into people's lounge rooms and studies and it, it is a little bit less formal. Justice Reardon. Oh, look, it must have some influence, Greg, um, and the fact that parties aren't there um, and without the atmosphere of the court. Hmm, I'm not necessarily convinced that it makes it harder to cross-examine, for example, certainly in, in the commercial environment. The cross-examination is normally based on taking witnesses to documents and pointing out inconsistencies or other reasons why their recollections or their evidence is not reliable. But I think that that still happens very effectively by this technology. Justice Forbes again. It's, it's an interesting challenge to try and keep a sense of the formality that goes with a court hearing, which is, it can be intimidating and that's a bad thing, but it also keeps a a rigour and a sort of a respect from everybody, and that's difficult. Uh, the other thing I think is that in a physical courtroom, the cues that you have are quite clear. You, you know, everybody stands up when the judge enters. Now, that doesn't work when you're all sitting in front of a screen because all of a sudden you get a, a view of everybody's midriffs and you lose their heads. The other consideration is someone's lounge room is not a controlled environment. So how does a judge ensure a fair trial when a witness is giving evidence remotely? Does it increase the chances of someone breaking the rules of the witness box? It does, and it's, um, it's something that we've given a lot of thought to about um, the integrity of where people are giving their evidence from. To give you an, an example, there was a situation where we had an expert who, in answering, sort of said... Oh, yes, one of the things I could do is I could find information from this source and because he was on a screen with internet access, started to do that in real time and we all had to say, no, 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 stop. We don't want you to supplement your answers by research on the run. And as a result of that experience, I've started making sure that everybody, before they start giving their evidence, understands quite clearly that they're in a position where they're in a witness box without being able to access screens or whatever to supplement their answers. But it is a concern and the degree of control you have is certainly less. Justice Dixon. If the judge gets a notion that there is some impact upon the fairness of the of the trial, well, then we, we just say to the parties, we have to adjourn this and we'll, we'll hear it again when, when things have eased. But mostly with civil cases, that, that hasn't been a problem. Justice Reardon. 
I think when you're watching someone carefully, you can tell if they're looking at somebody else and getting prompted. That would be a very serious thing for someone to do when there's been a direction that nobody else should be in the room. And if it, if it was being done, somebody would raise the alarm. Preferably they're attending in rooms often next door to where counsel are and the solicitors might be. If counsel and solicitors are involved in that sort of uh, conduct, uh, they're going to have very short careers. We, we rely on the profession to ensure that appropriate standards are, are maintained, but then ultimately the obligation is upon the judge to make sure that a fair trial is, is conducted. The opposing barrister will be right onto it. If, if they think that somebody's doing something they shouldn't do, they can, they can ask questions about that. Um, and you often see that. And like a witness who's been cross-examined is not supposed to discuss their evidence with anybody. And if, if they go out over lunch and discuss it um, with somebody after lunch, the barrister says, them, did you discuss your evidence with anybody over lunch? And, and there's an investigation about it. It is something where judges have got to be careful to ensure that um, the standard of a fair process is maintained. Virtual hearings have disrupted hundreds of years of courtroom tradition. And one of the biggest impacts might be on how barristers deliver their advocacy. Matthew Elbert. And the reason that's relevant to the older members of the profession is that, and of course this is not a universal comment, but as a broad observation, the significantly older members of the bar are not as comfortable talking to a computer as the younger members of the bar, just because of experience. But what's interesting about that is that the very senior silks come to a courtroom with a bag of tricks and I don't mean sneaky but they've just got a lot of experience and they know how to engage a courtroom they know how to fill a courtroom with their presence they know how to use their voice and project themselves to a bench in a way that is very impressive when you're there in person but when you put them in front of a computer and they're not entirely sure how to do it and their voice projection doesn't work quite the same way and the technology's not as smooth and they're not entirely clear how to get the document to the judge and there's just this slight anxiety and um, level of a lack of assurance that they wouldn't have if they were in court, then some of their magical powers disappear. And another thing the legal profession is famous for their dress code in the courtroom. Are people still robing up? Uh, robing is interesting. Justice Dixon. It's funny, people People working from home, their, their office might be in their bedroom, so they feel it's a bit strange to have their robes on. But when we've got witness actions with full trials, it's actually quite helpful to have the robes on because it enables people looking at the screen to actually know who the judge is. So it's useful to be robed so that people can see who you are and the respect and authority of the court can be can be maintained. Justice Reardon. Uh, not, not in my court. I've left that to the individual judges in the commercial court. I don't robe and I don't expect the parties to robe. But that doesn't mean there's no rules. I've had one instance at least where a lawyer didn't think it was appropriate that he should have to wear business attire for a Zoom meeting. That's just a matter where he had to ultimately accept that he did need to go to the effort of properly dressing. It is still a courtroom. Barrister Matthew Elbert has been doing virtual hearings across multiple courts during the lockdown. 
one judge wanted the jabot and the bar jacket, but not the gown. I've had uh, suits with ties. I've had suits without ties and I've had smart casual. So the, the whole range has been requested. And of course, I oblige every time, but provided you don't tell anyone, I can confide in you that every one of those outfits comes with uh, black tracksuit pants and slippers. Oh, yeah. I think um, a lot of things about doing trials remotely are better and will stay and everybody will say, this is very sensible. What will COVID-19 mean for the future running of the court? So many changes were forced, but it looks like at least some of these are here to stay. Uh, We already had half of our courts converted into electronic courts that were able to straight away go to these new virtual courtroom um, platforms. Uh, So that will continue to be used. Lots of applications that are are just the lawyers getting together to discuss how the case is going to be got ready for trial. Those kinds of things will continue to be much more efficiently dealt with um, over video, so I can see that that continuing. There is concern that it is easier to have franker discussions, to have interactive discussions in person. There's a a practicality in in in-person hearings with body language and and interpersonal communications that enables things to be more clearly explained, to work out what real issues are and to more efficiently move through um, material and information. So I think there will be a desire to return to uh, that kind of thing. The barristers will certainly say that advocacy works better in the difficult situations uh, through in-person work. And I I think from the judge's perspective, that's true as well. Do you think this will then bring in a change of the way things will happen once we're through this pandemic? I think as long as oral advocacy is at the centre of what we do, despite the fact that we rely heavily on written material. President of the Court of Appeal, Chris Maxwell. I'm of the view, and I know my colleagues are, that having the dialogue in court is easier and has a more obviously collaborative feel about it because the exchange can be more dynamic. The other thing is that for a court like the Court of Appeal, where we don't sit alone, um, we do sit in twos and threes all the time, the informal exchanges out of court, dropping in to chat about this case or that with another judge or judges are vital to the work we do. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson again. With every change in circumstance, you get a change in operation. So this has given us a real opportunity to try a lot in a very short time and to see what could be done more effectively the way we're operating now and what can't be. So yes, it will definitely change the way that we operate in the future. And for me, one of the real advantages has been that we've been able to um, break down those barriers that have been there uh, in some quarters that we have to keep doing things the way that we've always done them. We don't. We should be questioning everything we do, how we do it, and saying, is that still the right way to do it or should we alter it? And this has been you know, a great opportunity not to say that I would have wanted or wished for any pandemic anywhere, but we're in that circumstance, so you make the best of it. And if you've ever been into the office of a solicitor or the chambers of a barrister or judge, more often than not, they're filled with piles and piles of paperwork, shelves stacked with past cases and legislation. 
It's like they've never heard of a USB stick or a hard drive. Well, this might change. So many cases turn on on documents, documents produced by the parties, documents that are produced on subpoena. And the use of a virtual courtroom has forced a faster conversion to documents being presented electronically in court. 150 years ago, the case would have revolved around one handwritten document and the party in possession of it, that person's solicitor would show it to the other solicitor and they'd both examine it and make notes about it and and inspect it and so on. And then often the case would turn on whether the judge would permit that document to go into evidence. Then they invented carbon paper, then they invented the fax machine and they invented the photocopier and they invented the lever arch file and they invented those steel trolleys that enable you to transport 20 lever arch files around at once. Then we had email, and email has, you know, the 10 previous emails all in a chain, and everybody who got it produces the copy, and there's an enormous amount of duplication. And before you know it, what's gone from being one document uh, is thousands and thousands of documents. And so document management has become, over the years, a, a big problem. And the conversion to electronic document management that has come with virtual trials since the pandemic is definitely something I think that will stay and will be a good development for everybody. I feel like a lot of forests have been saved within the legal profession because we're exchanging documents electronically a lot more. At a court hearing, uh, parties always turn up with a folder of authorities, so the case law that's relevant to that case, and one turns up with a folder for oneself, a folder for the other side, and a folder for the judges. Now, if you're doing an appeal, that's three judges, so you're turning up with five folders of the same material, and of course, that's a shocking waste of paper. It's how we've always done business, but we're not doing business like that at the moment, and I, for one, hope we don't go back to it. But it's a, it's a radical change, I think, for the better. Look, I, I think that we have all learned to work more flexibly, and I don't think we would have put ourselves through this as a collective profession. Um, it's all very well to say, oh, we could have always worked from home. I don't think that's right. I think there was actually a very painful transition that had to be gone through for us to be able to work from home in a really effective way and it took something like this pandemic to force us to go through that. Yeah, I think it's been very promising. I think there's been a great deal of cooperation between the courts and the profession. Uh, we have all worked on the basis that we uh, had to find ways uh, around what was a unique, situa- a unique situation with unique problems. And I think everybody's been focused on, on doing that. I think we all feel pleased that we've made that leap and those of us who've been in the law a while have surprised ourselves by learning a few new technological skills. We've made our virtue of necessity in becoming individually a bit more self-sufficient in our use of technology. We've recommitted to the promise of the Court of Appeal of delivering high-quality appellate justice to all Victorians at a time when the threat of the pandemic might have challenged our ability to do that. There have been a lot of challenges moving to hearing things by video link and virtual hearings. Some of them are technological, some of them are practitioners and judges and court staff and everyone getting used to the new technology. Speaking personally, I'm very grateful for the fact that everyone has been so willing to 
see what we can do to get through this together. Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria and a reminder that Season 2 is on its way. In it, we'll look at the most controversial issues which come to the Supreme Court, like when does murder get downgraded to manslaughter, go behind the scenes of the usually long and complicated terrorism trials, as well as high-profile defamation cases. And most Victorians are familiar with the name Sir Edmund Barry, not least because there's so many things named after him. But spoiler alert, he did a lot more than sentence Ned Kelly to the gallows, from defending Aboriginal resistance fighters to getting into a duel with Mr Snodgrass. But we'll start the season by looking at the one part of the courtroom we haven't focused on yet, the bar table. Who sits there and what do they do? Feel free to get in touch. You can email us at gertie at subcourt.vic.gov.au. And don't forget, please rate and review us if you can. It helps others to find this podcast. I'm Greg Muller. Thanks for listening.